read about a woman who was uh, in the car with her children one day, and um, the little eight-year-old boy in the back seat picked up a book that uh, his father had left there a few days before, and he said, Mom, what is this? She said, oh, that's, that's a book about being authentic Christians. And he said, oh, yeah, that's what we are, right, Mom? Pathetic Christians. I don't know about you, but as we've gone through the Ten Commandments and as we've tried to, to mine up some of the things that are there, there have been many times where I've sort of felt like a pathetic Christian. You know, if you look at all that God is, is asking of us, and, and on the surface, it, it seems as though the Ten Commandments aren't that complicated. That they're just do this, don't do that, and go about your merry business, and but the more you look at them and the more you think about them and the more the Spirit of God gets into us through them, we realize how difficult they are and how often we fall short. There's the times where we feel a bit overwhelmed by all that God is asking of us in these Ten Commandments. And I, I think part of that is because we recognize how paradoxical these commands are to our natural human instincts. We tend to rebel against commands. Someone says, don't do that. We have a tendency to want to do it. Someone, we see a sign that says, wet paint, or don't touch, or don't cross. We tend to want to to touch it, cross it. We tend to, to do the opposite of what we are told to do. We have a tendency to think both about God and and about other people. Who are they to tell me what to do? And that problem is not limited to people out there when you talk about the Ten Commandments and the laws of God. It's about us too. We can never forget that these commandments are first and foremost addressed to God's people. That's you and me. In his penetrating book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, Ron Sider says that to say there's a crisis of disobedience in the evangelical world today is to dangerously understate the problem. Sexual morality, materialism, racism, spousal abuse and neglect of the most needy in society are as much a problem among the evangelical church as society as a whole. And we don't have to be around very long to know that we all wrestle with this stuff. What intrigues me is that I don't think God is surprised about our struggle. I mean, if the commandments weren't so contradictory to how human beings tend to think and live, then the Old Testament wouldn't be filled with story after story about people who disobey them. It's our struggle to obey these commandments and to obey God and to follow His way that makes the commandments so necessary and why God gives them to us and not just once but twice. The Ten Commandments are necessary because we are naturally, sinfully inclined to believe that life is primarily about us. That we are the center of the universe. That life ought to be about what we want and how we think and how we feel. That it's all about me. And as the people of God, the 
The commandments are given as one of God's means to help us rethink that. These commandments are, are not some kind of lower stage of godliness. They're the core of godliness. The Ten Commandments are an explanation of what it means to be God's people. And I'm pretty sure that being God's people always involves surrendering ourselves to God. And you see that as you look at these commandments. Time and time again, they come back to a call of surrender to God. Chris Hedges, in his book, Losing Moses on the Freeway, writes, We all stray. We all violate some commandments and, and don't adequately honor others. We're human. And the commandments work to keep us from revering the false covenants that are always around us. These false covenants have a powerful appeal. They offer a sense of security and empowerment. They tempt us to be God. They tell us things we want to hear and believe. And they appear to make us the center of the universe. And we kind of like that. And it's so easy to be overwhelmed by the noise and the images and, and self-gratification. We are so often inclined to just take the easy route. We don't like to sacrifice. But the commandments tell us that we live not by exalting our life, but by being willing to lose it. I mean, more than anything, God wants us, all of us, every part of us, all that we are, all that we do. He wants to bring all of it under His control, under His domain, under His command. And the commandments are calling us to do just that. Culture is continually telling us that, that this kind of radical allegiance to God is dangerous. I mean, it leads to crazy behavior. It leads to fanaticism. It leads to a view of life that makes other people feel uncomfortable. It leads to radical, uncommon behavior. But isn't that the point? If our relationship with Christ doesn't lead us to radical thinking and radical behavior, then... What are we doing that's any different from anyone else? Choosing to live a life that is sold out completely to God ought to look different. It ought to cause us to be different. Different in our attitudes, different in our choices, different in our commitment to love and to forgive and to serve. Different in our desire to to preserve what God has given us in creation, different in our spirit of hope and faith about life and people, different in our willingness to risk with no strings attached. The way of Christ is, is not seeing the commands of God as sort of items on a checklist, but it's to see them as truths that envelop us so that they affect how we think and how we live and how we view our lives and how we view God and how we view other people and every decision that we make. The 
keeps coming back to surrender, giving all, dying to self. It's always intrigued me that, that Paul defines the power of sin as the law. And it's a confusing thing because the law is given by God to his people and you wonder how can God give something that would create the power of sin? I think we understand that, that God, the law is the power of sin for a couple of reasons. One is because the law is the absolute truth against which we measure our lives. Without the law, all truth is subjective, which is why people tend to rebel against it. I mean, until you're aware of something that, until you're aware something is wrong, you, you realistically can't be held accountable for it. So if you're driving through Houghton for the first time and there are no speed limit signs up anywhere, then you, don't, you can't really be given a ticket for speeding. You might be given a ticket for reckless driving, but, but you can't be given a ticket for speeding. But the minute the law is made and the signs go up and you drive through Houghton to 70 miles an hour, if you get stopped, you ought to expect to get a ticket. The signs that represent and clarify the law, in a sense, cause you to sin if you don't change your behavior. It makes you accountable. But the law is also the power of sin because our natural human response to any law is to think, what's the least I can do? That doesn't have to be a law. It's just life that we tend to think that way. What's the least I can do and, and still be okay? And so, your professor assigns a thousand pages of collateral reading. If you're like most of us, you would rarely do a thousand and one, much less eleven or twelve hundred, no matter how enlightening and entertaining it was. If the deadline for submitting a paper is the 15th, most people wouldn't even consider turning it in on the 10th or the 11th, probably not even the 14th. If the deadline for turning in grades is Friday, you'd probably be in the minority if you submitted them on Tuesday or Wednesday or maybe even Thursday. And when we think about the law of God, we tend to think about minimum requirements. What's the least I have to do and still be a part of the kingdom? Jesus is calling us to live beyond minimum requirements. The Ten Commandments are calling us to live beyond minimum requirements. And instead of seeing the law as a starting place, we tend to see the law as an ending place. In faith, we're hesitant to trust instead of having a sense of delight to go to the end limits with Christ. And we tend to think, what's the least I have to do and still remain in the kingdom of God? And the Ten Commandments and all of Scripture is calling us to surrender all of ourselves, not the minimum amount, but the maximum amount. Lewis reminds us that the Christian way is different from any other religious system. It's both harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your money, and so much of your work. I want you. 
I've not come to torment your natural self. I've come to kill it. I'm not talking about half measures. I don't want to cut off a branch here or a branch there. I want to cut down the whole tree. He says, I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it. I want to pull it out. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires that you think are innocent as well as the things that you think are wicked. All of it. And he says, this is the whole of Christianity. There's really nothing else. And this is what the commandments are calling us to do. To come and to die to self as we submit ourselves to God. And eventually, obedience, particularly this kind of radical, surrender, die to self-obedience, is always an issue of the heart. And issues of the heart always bring us back to love. You cannot obey without understanding how to love. And you cannot love without obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. John declares, if you you don't love your neighbor, you don't love God. And this is love for God, to obey his commands. Paul tells the Roman Christians, for the commandments against adultery and murder and stealing and coveting or any of the commandments are all summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it says all the law and the prophets are wrapped up in these commandments. When you think about it, every breach of the Decalogue is a violation of love. If you love God with all your heart, there's no room for another God there. If you love God with all your heart, you wouldn't think of of limiting God with cheap representations of Him. If you love God, you're careful about how you use His name and how you represent Him among other people. If you love God, then you're eagerly welcome that day set aside each week to think more about God and to spend time, more time in the presence of God and with God's people. And if you love others, it changes how you treat them. Parents and and elders in general are treated with honor and respect. If you love other people, then you care about life in all of its forms. If you love other people, you refuse to break the sacred vow of marriage, both your own and others. If you love, you won't take what belongs to other people. You won't lie for self-protection and and for self-gratification. When you love God and you love others, you come to realize that you don't need what others have. You can be content with whatever God gives you. And these commandments are a call to love, to love God and to love others. But I also believe that we will only surrender and we will only love when we come to understand that the commandments 
are God's gift to us. God says to Israel and subsequently to us, you will be my people and I will be your God. And just so you know that I'm serious about it and so you know that I love you and care for you and that I only want what is best for you, here are some things that you need to know. Some things about me, some things about you, some things that will strengthen the bond between us and about what will make your life one of joy and fulfillment. And God writes them on two tablets and sends Moses down the mountain with them. And what Moses brings down the mountain is God's plan to set us free. And that's something we need because sometimes we don't even realize that we're imprisoned. In the movie, The the Shawshank Redemption, an, an inmate named Red tells the story of another inmate named Andy, a young, successful banker who in 1947 was wrongfully convicted of murdering his wife. He was sentenced to two consecutive life terms at the Shawshank prison. Halfway through the film, an, an old con becomes enraged and threatens to take another inmate's life. He's holding a makeshift knife at this inmate's throat, and in the tense moments that follow, Red and Andy persuade him to lay down the knife. It's then that they discover that that this inmate has just received word that his parole has come through. And the thought of freedom outside the prison walls sent him over the edge. Later, some of the inmates are discussing this in the prison yard, and one of them concludes that, that Brooks had bugged out, gone mad, and Red disagrees. He says, Brooks ain't no bug. He's just institutionalized. The man's been here 50 years. 50 years. This is all he knows. In here is an important man. He's an educated man. Outside, he's nothing. He's just a used-up con with arthritis in both hands. See, he probably couldn't get a, a library card if he wanted to. So you can believe whatever you want, but I'm telling you, these walls are funny. First you hate them, and then you get used to them. And enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. And like prison walls, our self-centeredness, our sinfulness, gives us a sense of security. But it's false security. And the commandments invite us to live outside the prison walls of our self-centeredness and our sin. And that's not always easy to do. It feels so right. It feels so comfortable. And God's call to, to live any other way is scary. It looks dangerous. It looks frightening. It It looks unappealing sometimes. And that's why we need to know that God's commandments come from His loving heart and are intended only to lead us out of the walls of our prison into the freedom that He wants for us. Now that doesn't mean that He's not going to have boundaries and limits because He does. The difference is 
the, our old boundaries confine us and restrict us and lead to death. And the new boundaries, the boundaries of God, are boundaries that set us free. It may seem odd to think of boundaries connected to freedom, but it's a lot like a loving father who cares for his children. It's like parents who, who, who make rules, as, as Doug was talking earlier, to, for their children to avoid unnecessary pain and trouble. And so parents warn the children not to play in the streets or not to get in a car with strangers or play with matches or drink poison. And you could say on one hand, well, those are confining boundaries, but, but they're intended to help us and they come from a heart of love and they come to prevent pain and heartache. And God's command against murder prevents us from doing something that will hurt others and cost us years of incarceration, of being eaten alive by hate and bitterness. God's command against adultery prevents us from causing pain to a spouse or a child or extended family member or friends or community. The command to keep the Sabbath is not intended to, to limit what we do on a particular day of the week but to set us free from the enslavement of work as a means of, of finding self-worth and value and purpose. Sabbath provides an opportunity to, to pray and, and to play. To put aside the pressures and the stresses of what we do all week in order to have more time to think about God and to be restored by enjoying family and friends and life and God. All of the commandments are for our good and for the good of others. So it's not a coincidence that when God introduces the law to the people, he reminds them, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who rescued you. I'm the, one, I'm the reason that you're free. I'm the reason that you have a hope and a future. I'm the one who brought you out of the, of the iron fist of Pharaoh. And brought you into this land. I'm the one who loves you. And everything I give to you, including these commandments, are for your good. And to bring blessing and prosperity and joy to you. But we also need to understand that uh, the loving God who gives us these commandments... It's also the loving God who forgives us when we struggle to keep them. And every one of us is going to struggle to keep them. We're going to have some days where it feels like everything we do is right. And we're going to have other days where it doesn't quite turn out that way. We're going to continue to battle our, our, our self-interests. We're going to continue to battle our self-centeredness making decisions that are, that are based solely on self-gratification. There are going to be days where we're going to reject what God wants for us. And we need to know in those moments that God is always ready to forgive. I mean, the scriptures are clear about it. David breaks virtually every commandment in his relationship with Bathsheba, and yet when he repents, God forgives. The people of Israel break every commandment over and over again. And when they repent, God forgives. The Apostle John declares that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just 
and He will forgive our sins. And when we fall short, and, and in those moments we, we are tempted to say it's not worth it, and we throw in the towel, and we just say forget about it, God says no matter how deep your, the stain of your sins, I can remove it. I can make you as clean as freshly fallen snow. Even if you're stained as red as crimson, I can make you as white as wool. And the God who gives the commandments in love to protect us is the same God who offers forgiveness in those times when we fall short. But God's ultimate plan is to keep us from the pain of sin so that we can live in the joy of his freedom and the choice and the consequences are always before us. You know, in the first week as we began talking about the Ten Commandments, I mentioned that as the Sermon on the Mount comes to an end, Jesus tells a, a parable about two houses. They look exactly the same. Same blueprints, same contractors, same materials. And, and if you were to look at them, they would look exactly alike. But they're built on different foundations. One's built on solid rock and one's built on shifting sand. But you can't really tell until the storm comes. And the storm, when the storm lashes against the houses, the rain falls and the wind blows and, and the lightning strikes and the thunder peals and the waves crash up against it. The foundation upon which the houses are built becomes very clear. As the house built on rock stands, and the house built on the sand crumbles to pieces. The Ten Commandments are given to us as the kind of solid rock upon which we can build our lives. And today, as we ponder them once again, I pray that God will give us grace and courage to choose them, to follow them, to live them, to surrender ourselves to God's call to obey. Father, we thank you for these commandments. And we ask that you will help us not just to learn them, but to let them take over us. Move into us and through your Holy Spirit to transform us. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. As I was pondering how we might end this, uh, this series of, of Sundays about the Ten Commandments, I, a couple things that I wanted to do to hopefully help us take these with us. Uh, I found a, there was an idea that Martin Luther used in his 
in his personal prayer time where he, he prayed the Ten Commandments. And, and he used four things uh, as he looked at each one of them. First of all, as he, as he read the commandment, he gave thanks to God that in his love and mercy, God cared enough to give him that commandment, to help him know how to live. And then he asked God, what do you want to teach me about this commandment? What is there here that I need to learn, do I need to understand? And then he prayed, Lord, is there something about this particular commandment that I need to confess some sin? Is there something in me that's missing and something that this commandment needs to, to, to weed out through your spirit? And then he prayed for God to help him internalize and live and express the fullness of that particular commandment that day and every day. And I want to encourage you as individuals and even as a family to take some time, perhaps to use this model, but to, to think and to talk and to keep the commandments before you. We've also created for you a bookmark that is in your bulletin today, and if you didn't get one, or more in the back. A bookmark of, that lists the Ten Commandments, somewhat in a few of them in abbreviated form, so that you can take this with you and, and look at it and, and think about it. And, and what I'd like for us to do this morning is, is to read through uh, the words of the bookmark. And then we're going to take just a moment of some time for silence to meditate on these commandments as we hear God speaking to us through them. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Walk in all the way the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. Let's take a moment to ponder these words. Amen. We are also responsible not only for the commandments in our own lives, but in each other's lives.
These commandments are given to the people of God as a community. We're responsible to teach them to our children and to help one another as we, as we live our lives attempting to follow them. We ought to be thinking, how can I encourage that person, those children, these students to a deeper walk with God? And hopefully we will be channels through which we are challenging each other to, to follow them and to live as close to them as possible. I think it's been God's plan from the beginning that uh, His people would so live out the truths of His Word and of the Scriptures and of what God desires that then other people would see that and be drawn to God through them. And I think if, if God's people lived the Ten Commandments in action and in spirit, the world would be a far different place. But we need each other to do that. And so I, what I'm going to ask you to do is to take the piece of paper, the, I think it's green, uh, that's an insert in your bulletin. It might be orange for some of you. And we're going to challenge and affirm one another. And I'm going to ask you to stand and to face the center aisle. And in case, um, in case you're not aware, the, those of you on my right, your left, or north, those of you over here are south. All right, and we're going to we're going to read this to each other, and and challenge each other and affirm each other as God works these commandments in our lives. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone.
And in the words of, of Moses, take to heart all the words I've given you today. Pass them on as a command to your children so they will obey every word of the law. These instructions are not mere words. They are your life. By obeying them, you will enjoy a long life in the land you are crossing the Jordan River to occupy. Amen.